I'm, I'm a Russian historian, uh, and I love teaching Russian history, and I taught it during, during the Cold War when it seemed really significant, because it, teaching it in Australia, where I was, it was a bit like talking about the dark side, and I felt my students really needed to know about that world, and I've been a student there. But I became more and more kind of obsessed with the, the idea that if, as historians, we teach about the past in national units, now, I'm, I'm not Russian, but I was teaching Russian history, and I realized what I was doing. I was giving the subliminal message that we humans are divided at a fundamental level into tribes, into competing tribes. And having lived through the Cuban Missile Crisis, I remember it vividly. I was a schoolboy in England, uh, where this tribalism threatened to blow us all up. Uh, that was a very vivid experience for me. I thought for historians to keep teaching this subliminal message that we're, we're divided by tribes is not a good thing. Years later, I went back to H.G. Wells' Outline of History, and right at the beginning, he wrote it at the end of World War I, he says exactly the same thing, that we need a history of humanity. Because as long as we teach history as a story of tribes, of competing tribes, wars are going to repeat themselves, and all the horrors of World War I are going to repeat themselves. So, I'd stumbled on the same sort of idea, and, and, and I was thinking, we need a history of humanity. In Australia, there was no world history at that time, so there were no models that I was aware of at the time. And so I had to think it through myself. And I'd always read science, because I'd always been a science nerd. I loved good, popular science writing. I mean, writing by good scientists for intelligent readers. Uh, and so I thought, we need a history of humanity. What would it look like? And I realized immediately, you have to take the Paleolithic era seriously. Chronologically, most of human history spent in the Stone Age. And in Australia, the Stone Age survived until very recently. But then I started, <coughs> then I started thinking, um, you have to talk about human evolution. So you actually have to go beyond the borders of the history discipline. And you have to talk about how humans evolved. And then I thought, Yikes, now I'm in biology. Um, and then I thought, but to do that seriously, I have to talk about how you get from bacteria to multicelled organisms. In other words, I have to have some sort of grip on the whole history of life on Earth. But to do that seriously, I have to talk about the origins of life, which means talking about how the planet was formed, getting into geology. And then I thought, to do that seriously, I have to look at astronomy. And so this, this, this started looking terrifying until I realized there's a starting point with the Big Bang. You know, in the present state of science, this is a story that has a beginning. And of course, cosmologists are trying to look beyond that beginning. But as I understand it, at the moment, there's no hard data that takes you beyond that. So I thought, here's a starting point. Could you teach a history course that began with the origins of the universe? Because that would be the way to give a sense of humanity as a single species facing shared problems in, in the modern world. And that's really how I began teaching big history in 1989 at Macquarie University in Sydney. And it was a lot of fun. It was such fun. I, I invited colleagues from all different departments. Um, but none of us had a clue how to put the bits and pieces together. So the, an astronomer would talk about the Big Bang. Uh, someone else would talk about the origins of stars, the creation of the Earth, and so on. But the lectures, because of the culture of specialization, each lecturer brought their own jargon, their own suite of 
favoured problems, their own techniques and so on. So for students this was really tough. Over the years I started giving more and more of the lectures myself as I sort of slowly got on top of the agenda and gradually a larger story began coming into focus. Now it's, I'm not the only person to have done this. Eric Chason in Boston has been doing, Isaac Asimov had been doing similar things. Um, but uh, gradually a clear story came into focus and I realized this was not as crazy as some people thought. It was very doable. And then eventually I realized that what we were really teaching was a modern origin story. Uh, and of course we were also doing what C.P. Snow had talked about. Because very early on I realized I would have to help my students across the divide between the two cultures, from the sciences to the humanities. What happens at that borderline? And I, for several years, I gave lectures on the philosophy of science, trying to help students get a sense of why the claims of science are so powerful today, why they need to be taken seriously, but also why they're not absolute, because most students had a simple epistemology with two default positions. Either science is right, and therefore everything before science is wrong, or they're all stories. And I needed to sort of maneuver them into a more complex and unstable central position, where science is not absolute, the origin stories of the past were not completely wrong. They were probably the best shot given the knowledge available at that time. And I include things like indigenous dreamtime stories in Australia. They were the cutting-edge science of their time, but they're not the cutting-edge science of now. And if you live now, you need to take what science says very seriously. So manoeuvring students into that position was, was important. And the other wonderful... Well, I, I realised a lot of things. One was that students loved this. Even though in the early years we didn't know what we were doing, and they knew we didn't know what we were doing. And I think they loved it because a bright young person goes to school. They're full of questions, and their questions are about the meaning of life. What is this cosmos I'm part of? What does it mean to be human? They go to school, and the first great disillusionment, I think we've all suffered it, but we've buried it deep in our subconscious, conscious, is that the teachers more or less say to you, shut up about the meaning of life. You know, get on with your French verbs or your American history or, or your Russian history, whatever, whatever it is. And what we learn is that school is not about meaning. It's about a whole series of technicalities or fragmentary bits of meaning. At no point does someone try to help you put them all together. Then you go to university and you think, well, okay, a university at least, there will be philosophers, there will be people who put it, same thing happens. And we all get used to this. So we all get locked into this, this sort of culture of specialization, which is so deeply embedded in education and research. People's egos are tied up with it. You define yourself as a specialist in this area or another. So students, I think, love this course because of the questions we were asking. And the questions we were asking were those questions. What is your place in the cosmos? What is the cosmos of which you are a part? Are you a large part of it? Are you central? Are you marginal? Um, is there anything distinctive about humans? 
And gradually over the years, I've come to believe that modern science contains really rich answers to a lot of those questions. So that we can say to students, these are great questions. We won't be able to give you perfect answers or complete answers, but we can take you a long way. And modern science can take you a long, long way as you pursue those questions. And that's really what we try to do in the big history courses. So one of the things, as we were trying to put together this story and trying to put together a coherent story that linked what we think of as the natural sciences and the humanities, uh, was what sort of story would emerge at the end of this. Now, in, in the past, say, in the Christian tradition, or in fact, I think in all cultural traditions, you have unifying stories. We don't seem to have one in the modern world. And I think one of the reasons is because modern science is so... I'm talking really about the, the natural sciences here. Many scientists are so worried that a concern for meaning or story or significance or purpose will somehow warp the mapping process that scientists are engaged in. Now, at the methodological level, that's true. You, you, you don't let your preconceptions warp what you're doing. But at a sort of ontological level, I don't think that is true. So I think modern science, and I include the humanities here, science in a kind of German sense of science, rigorous scholarship across all domains. Uh, modern science, we've got used to the idea that science doesn't offer meaning in the way that religions, institutional religions, did in the past. But I'm increasingly thinking that this idea that, 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 that modernity places, puts us in a, in, a, in a world without meaning, philosophers have banged on about this for a century and a half, may be completely wrong. We may be living in a sort of intellectual building site where a new story is being constructed. It's vastly more powerful than the previous ones because it's the first one that is global. It's not anchored in a particular culture or a particular society. This is an origin story that works for humans in Beijing as well as in Buenos Aires. Uh, it's a global origin story and it sums over vastly more information than any earlier origin story. So this is very, very powerful stuff and I think it's full of meaning. And I think we're now at the point where across so many domains the, 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 the amount of information of good, rigorous ideas is, is so rich that we can tease out that story. And the time has come. E.L. Wilson has been arguing for this for a long time. In Consilience, he argued for this. So it's the same project. The, and it turns out, as we tell it at least, there is a really coherent story. Now, there may be various ways of doing it, but the way we do it is very much a story about increasing complexity, and it's a story that's very relevant, relevant for humans. You, the early universe, say half a million years after the Big Bang, um, was very, very simple. Uh, you, you have clouds of hydrogen and helium. You don't have any other elements, smatterings of lithium and, and beryllium. Um, and they're very homogenous, uh, roughly the same density, roughly the same temperature everywhere. And then gradually, over 13.8 billion years, more complex things appear, but they only appear where the Goldilocks conditions are just right. So that's the story we tell. And we tell it, this is just a convenience really, across eight thresholds, thresholds of increasing complexity. 
And the first is the Big Bang itself, the creation of the universe. The second is the creation of stars. Once you have stars, already the universe, there's much more diversity. Stars have structure, galaxies have structure. You now have rich gradients of energy, of density, of gravity. So you've got flows of energy that can now build more complex things. Dying stars give you the next threshold, which is creating a universe with all the elements of the periodic table. So it's now chemically richer. You can now make new materials. You can make the materials of planets and moons and asteroids. And on some planets, particularly rocky planets, you actually get an astonishing chemical diversity. And the reason, I think, is because most of the hydrogen and helium from the inner solar system was driven away by the solar wind. So in the inner planets, you're left with an environment that's remarkably chemically rich, and that's the environment that eventually gave birth to life on this planet. But the odds are increasing that, that, that there's life. The universe is crawling with life, I think. Um, so life is a sort of fifth threshold. Planets are a fourth threshold. And one of the wonderful things about the story, I think, is that as you widen the lens, I'm increasingly convinced that all these very big questions that we're asking that seem impossible when seen from within the disciplinary silos actually begin to look manageable from the large scale. So let me give two examples. One is life itself. I have a feeling that within this story it's possible to offer a fairly simple but powerful definition of what makes life a different sort of complexity from the complexity of, say, simple chemical molecules or stars or galaxies. And it's that with life you get complex entities appearing in extremely unstable environments. Um, stars sort of create their own environments, so, so that they, they can work mechanically. If you have complex things in very unstable environments, they need to be able to control, manage energy flows to maintain their complexity. If the environments are constantly changing, they need some sort of mechanism for detecting changes. Now that, I think, is the point at which information enters the story. What were just variations in the universe suddenly become information because something is responding in a complex way to those variations. And something like choice enters the story, because no longer do living organisms make choices mechanically. They make choices in a, in a more complex way. You can't always guarantee that they're going to make the same choice. And so that's where natural selection kicks in. You have millions of organisms making different choices, and natural selection allows the right choices to get preserved within the lineage. So making the right choices matters. Now that means in a sense that purpose has entered the story at this stage. So you could perhaps define life within the story as complex entities that appear in extremely unstable environments. To survive in those environments, you need capabilities that stars don't need. You need to be able to detect information. You need some mechanism for making what I think we can call choice. That, I think, is why living organisms are so complex and why they give the appearance of purpose. And then if you move on to human beings, you can ask the question, which students are 
dying to ask, what makes humans different? And it's a, a, a question that the humanities have, have, have sort of struggled with for, for, for centuries. And again, I have the hunch that within this very broad story, there's a fairly clear answer to that. If all living organisms use information about their environments to control and manage the energy flows they need to survive, biologists call it metabolism, or, or, or to constantly adjust, homeostasis, then we, we, we know that most living organisms have a kind of limited repertoire. So that when they first appear, a new species appears, its numbers will increase until it's using the energy that its particular metabolic repertoire allows it to fill. You look at graphs of human population growth and something utterly different is going on. Here you have a species that appears in probably the savannah lands of East Africa, but it doesn't stay there. During the Paleolithic, over perhaps 200,000 years, you can watch this species, certainly in the last 60,000 years, slowly spreading into new niches. Uh, coastal niches in South Africa. We, Blombos Cave is a wonderful site that illustrates that. Uh, then eventually desert lands, forest lands, eventually into Ice Age Siberia, across to Australia. And by 10,000 years around, ago, our species has spread around the world. Now this is utterly new behaviour. This is a species that is acquiring more and more and more information. And that, I think, is the key to what makes us different. So you can ask, what is it that allows us not to be locked within a kind of limited repertoire, metabolic repertoire, but to keep expanding that repertoire? And I think there may be a very simple answer. And we should expect a simple answer, because on paleontological timescales, this happens in an eye blink. It happens so fast that arguments that say, well, humans are different because of this and this and this and this and this, they don't work. There's got to be one thing that sort of like a key unlocks a door. And I suspect it's linguistic. Chimps we know have language. We know they can communicate ideas. We know that chimp mothers can teach their young to termite, for example, something like that, to, 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 to use sticks to extract termites from mounds. But we also know that that information does not seem to accumulate generation by generation. If it did, we would see evidence of it. We would see a species that was gradually widening its niche. We don't see that. Humans, I think, have crossed a sort of linguistic threshold. It's as if suddenly human language is more efficient. It's crossed a threshold beyond which information accumulates faster than it's lost. And that means something really profound. It means we're the first species in four billion years in which information accumulates across generations it, through the cultural mechanism, not through the genetic mechanism. And the cultural mechanism, of course, is orders of magnitude faster than the genetic mechanism. So here you have a species where information can accumulate across generations. That's it. If, if, I think that is the foundation for explaining everything that makes us different. And if you add in that more information for a living organism gives you more control over resources and energy flows, 
then what you're doing is you're watching a species whose control over the energy flowing through the biosphere increases, and increases at an exponential rate. Because as information accumulates, some of that information speeds up the process of the accumulation of information. Printing's an obvious example, or the internet. Um, and basically that's it. If you get such a species, if such species exist on other planets, you can guarantee one thing. Hang around for a few hundred thousand years, and there will be something like an Anthropocene. This species will dominate flows of energy on its planet. And that's where we are right now. And the big question, I think, that this, this, this leaves us with is we're managing these colossal flows of energy. We're benefiting from them. They make us staggeringly wealthy. They give us a sort of buffer against crude needs that is, is something utterly new. But they are on such a scale that they're beginning to disrupt old biospheric cycles, the carbon cycle, the nitrogen cycle. They're disrupting biodiversity. So that's the challenge for the future. Can we maintain the good things, the things that, that make a good life for us as a result of our increasing control of energy without undermining the Goldilocks conditions that allow us humans to build this sort of extraordinarily complex civilization. I, I don't want to overclaim. I mean, no. I'm a historian. I'm not a scientist. I'm not mathematically literate in the way that, that, that I ought to be if I was a scientist. And, and the, the, the hunch, I guess, I'm, I'm making is that just really widening the lens like this has the capacity not to dilute your ideas, but actually to bring some of them into sharper focus. I recently, about a year ago, I saw a fabulous production of Waiting for Godot in Sydney. And I think, I first encountered Godot at school and it didn't make any sense to me at all. And this production finally made lots of sense to me. I, I, I realised what, you know, people more sensitive to drama than I realised years ago, <laughs> is that it's, it's talking about a world without meaning. They're, they're waiting for meaning, in a sense. That's one of the meanings of Godot. And, of course, Godot never turns up. And the really poignant thing that was really brought out in this production was in a world, in a really cold, bleak world of disconnection, of despair, of no meaning, no purpose, there's only one thing left, which is a sort of desperate friendship between people who are actually quite different. You know, that's all you're left with. And that image of modernity, I think, has dominated thinking uh, for a century and a half. And, and it arises from, it's connected in some way with specialization, which I think was the strategy of scholars in many disciplines for dealing with this vast tsunami of information that began to flow over us from the late 19th century. Break it up. It's, there's too much information. We can't deal with it all. Break it up. So, so Matthew Arnold in Dover Beach captures beautifully this terrible sense of loss of, of the tide of faith is now receding. It's one of the phrases in the poem. And it's been a dominant theme in thinking for a century and a half. I increasingly think that it's wrong, that within modern science there is a story that's even bigger than those of the institutionalized religions. It's not deistic, it's about a universe without teleology, without a conscious creator, 
But a universe which Dan Danette writes about this beautifully in, 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 in his book on, uh, on Darwin's Dangerous Idea. It's a universe which it blindly can create interesting and complex things. That's the story. Dan Dennett describes this, this idea beautifully, but you can actually find it if you look in, in, in early, the early writings of, of Buddhism or in Greek philosophy, the idea of a universe that's not actually shaped and created by gods, but, but in which things appear. You don't need a driver, you don't need a creator. So this is teasing out this story, this rich story, is, is, is one of the things we're really trying to do in, in big history. And I'm increasingly convinced that as we do this, many problems that once seemed intractable will actually begin to seem more manageable if you approach them from across multiple disciplines. And that, I'd like to think, includes all the challenges that we'll face in the next 50 or 100 years. Challenges of like climate change, declining biodiversity, the fact that there is a mass extinction going on at the moment. And it's caused by the fact that we humans are hogging so many of the resources of the biosphere that other species are impoverished. You know, we've, we've, we've impoverished them and, and we're driving many of them to extinction. So those challenges too, I hope, will become clearer if we can help more students and researchers to step back from the specializations a bit. And I, th I think of this sometimes as the view from the mountaintop. If education and research are about learning about particular landscapes, here and there, the landscape of genes, of genetics, the landscapes of French literature, or whatever it is, then sometime you need to stand back and look at the whole thing from the mountaintop where you see how they all link together. One of the reasons why I think I think this approach of big history, this attempt to sort of put everything together, which E.O. Wilson called consilience, is so important, is partly because I, I think specialization for all its achievements in the last century and a half, and they've been staggering, is part of the reason why so many people struggle to take serious to, to take science seriously, to understand science. And, and one of the things that, that big history can do, I think, is help us see that there is a coherent story behind modern science. And I, I use the phrase modern science in, in, in this broad sense, you know, rigorous contemporary scholarship right across the board. And from my own students and from the students who are learning big history through the Big History Project in schools, there are now several hundred schools teaching big history through the Big History Project and using the website materials available. Um, they, I think there are many students who are worried about science. They're scared of science. They, they don't want to grapple with, with it. But once they see that, that there is within our modern understanding of the universe and the earth and the planet and biology, there is a coherent story that's, that's, that's full of meaning. That will lead them into science. And I think within science, this confusion of... What's the best way of putting it? This sense that, that scientists are just mapping the universe, they're not in the business of meaning, I think has been rather damaging. 
Yes, as a methodological principle, you're mapping. You're describing the world. You don't let your own biases, your own opinions, your own beliefs get in the way of what you see. That's absolutely true as a methodological principle. But if you then impose that on science as a whole, you create an image in the minds of many non-scientists of science as a domain of where you learn lots of powerful and skillful tricks, many of which are quite difficult to learn. Now, if we tease out what I call the story, and I'm aware that many scientists might be slightly worried by talking about story or origin story, but if we tease out the story, that this is a meaningful account of our place in the universe and of the nature of the universe, I think you'll find that will undercut a lot of contemporary resistance to science. And it may stop words like scientism being used as an accusation. As far as I can see, the word scientism is science with a pejorative loading. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's the word you use if somehow you don't like, you resist science, you fear science. Um, I, I hope that one of the things big history teaching can do is remove some of that sense of fear, lead people into the science through a, through a sense that it's meaningful, it's deeply meaningful. And, and, and young people who, who, who understand that it's meaningful will eventually want to do the hard work of learning the calculus, of, of learning the, you know, the, the, the details of, of, of molecular biology and so on. So I think this is one of the solutions to the STEM problem and to the larger problem of cultural resistance to what science is saying. And I'd like to think that big history is part of the solution to that problem. If I've got it right, and again I stress that this is a hunch, but it's based on 25 years of teaching this and watching the reaction of students. Um, because science has presented itself through education and to a large extent in the media as a series of difficult technical gadgets which sometimes have exciting payoffs if you're willing to do the hard reading. Um, to, to, to commit to science, to many people, seems to be committing to something negative, to the absence of purpose, to the absence of meaning. In fact, if, if I'm right that there is a rich story here within science, then the idea that science too is telling a story, uh, a story that has a lot to tell us about our place in space and time, it's like all all philosophical traditions, it's a sort of mapping process. It tells you where you are in space and time. And that mapping process, which is present in all origin stories, I think, is powerful because it tells you who you are, where you are. And by doing that, it tells you what possibilities are open to it. So, so I think it's a, I think there is a, a sort of educational challenge for science to present itself as meaningful, to present itself as being as meaningful as any other great philosophical tradition and, in addition, much more powerful because it sums over so much more information and it's global. I, I, I taught in San Diego for many years and I taught big history and I had a lot of students who were creationists and, and 
uh, they had the courage to actually say to me that I, I struggle with all of this. And one of the things I found was that many of them are struggling in a way that I think is admirable. They're looking for a big story. They don't find it in science because we don't teach it that way. So eventually they, they go to their churches because they do find a big story there. But quite a few, I realised, are a bit uneasy about this because they realise there's a sort of mismatch between the big story which they get from their churches and the science that created the iPhone that they carry in their pockets. They're a bit uncomfortable about this. But the reason they will go to that story, even, even despite the discomfort, is precisely because science does not present itself as containing an alternative story. Um, so, so, that, so that's why I'd like to think that big history can lead many students to see science as not merely powerful, powerful knowledge, but as meaningful knowledge, as knowledge that tells you about who you are and what you are. I, I've argued, I've floated the idea that what I call collective learning may be what makes us different. In other words, the capacity of humans to share information with such precision and in such volume that information at the cultural level increases from generation to generation. Now, I think that's a fundamental threshold, and I think it, it's what defines us. Mm -hmm. it, 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 it explains why communities are so various, because each community accumulates information in slightly different ways. It explains why when communities meet, the synergies are so powerful. It, it's the source of technology, it's the source of science, it's the source of civilization, it's what, what makes everything. Now, we need, but if that's right, we need to distinguish between two problems. One is how we cross that threshold, which is a fiendishly complex technical problem that involves a vast range of evidence, some of it sort of neurological, some of it archaeological, some of it anthropological. So it's a fiendishly complex problem explaining how we did it. But the second problem, I think, is, is much more manageable, is defining the threshold itself. That, I think, we can do. And that we can do quite simply. And we can also look for the evidence that the threshold has been crossed. So, in a sense, I would like to sort of put aside the problem of how and why this changed. It's got to be something simple. Because on paleontological timescales, the change is so quick. So the idea... I mean, Chomsky's idea of, of, of a sort of slight neurological change that, that gave us grammar may be on the right track. It, whether it's literally true or not, we, we don't know. If we put aside the problem of how we got human language as opposed to chimp language, then what we're left with is defining the nature of the threshold. And it, it, it's quite subtle, but it's not really hard. The threshold is, if, if you think of languages as communicating with a certain level of efficiency, then information theory comes into this. And there's rich material on information theory, and I wouldn't pretend, pretend to understand it in detail, but the point is you can actually measure the efficiency of information systems. So much information is conveyed with, such, with a certain degree of precision or not. Now, you can imagine a scale where 
at lower levels, information is flowing. It's like a game of telephone, where if I, if I say to someone, okay, 16Z capital YW, pass it on, that information is going to die quite soon. If I say, I'm in New York, and pass it on, that information will, will carry. So it's as if chimps live in a world where information might be able to survive one or two exchanges, but it can't get much further. We've crossed a threshold which may be neurologically quite small, beyond which we have what Terence Deacon has called symbolic language, a language where words are incredibly compressed packets containing a lot of information. So I can say three syllables, pink elephant, four syllables, um, and suddenly an image will pop into someone's brain of something that's never existed and never has. Symbolic language allows us to talk about things that are not here. It vastly increases the range of what we can communicate. Once you cross that, then you're in new territory. And in fact, you may be in such new territory that you will block off other species that are close to crossing that threshold, which might have been the fate of some other hominine species in the last 500,000 years. So, in summary, I think we can define the general nature of the threshold that makes humans different. We can say what it is that makes us different. It's a language so efficient that information accumulates across generations, cultural information as opposed to genetic information. We don't yet know exactly how that happened. But it may be that we can go a long way leaving that as a sort of black box, which we hope the linguists or the you know, neuroscientists may solve in the next decade or two, and go on to the next project, which is looking for evidence that our species has crossed that line. And I think the evidence has to appear somewhere between 250 and 50,000 years ago. We should look for evidence of a species whose niche is expanding. By 50,000 years ago, that evidence is getting pretty powerful in Africa. Maybe by 100,000, maybe even 200,000 years ago. You should look for evidence of symbolic activity. So whenever you find hominines nearby ochre rocks that seem to have been scraped or used or marked. There's a hint there that you may have a species that is thinking symbolically because it probably painted itself. So I think this, this whole problem about the origins of language, we need to unpack a bit and distinguish the problem of how we got a more efficient language from the consequences of getting a more efficient language, which we can talk about. What are, what are the sort of institutional structures within which big history exists? Yeah. It's a very new project. It, it's the, 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 the project is trying to break through some of the barriers created by what I think of as a culture of specialization, both in research and in education. I began teaching it at university. For years, I just thought, I'm teaching a kind of boutique university course. Mm -hmm. But a few other universities got interested in it and picked it up. It's now being taught in different forms in a number of universities. The University of Amsterdam picked it up and they've taught big history courses for years, modeled originally on the, on the course I was teaching. Um, Southern Methodist 
in, in Dallas, it's quite independently. John Mears began teaching a course there. Uh, Eric Chason has been teaching an astronomer's version in Boston. So there are probably, I'm guessing, 30 or 40 universities, mostly in North America, that are teaching big history in some form. There now exists the college-level textbook, which, of which I'm the lead author, author uh, and that's aimed at college students. Eventually, I would love to construct a series of uh, research conferences around big history, and their agenda would be to take ideas such as information or complexity, what, what the Santa Fe Institute is doing, um, or the question, what makes human dif humans different? Questions that run across many disciplines and get experts from different disciplines. So that's the university level. Since uh, 2010, um, Bill Gates has been supporting the creation of a free online site that teaches a big history course for high schools. That's the Big History Project. Mm -hmm. It's open to everyone. Anyone can go. There's a public version, which is a sort of 10-hour course in big history that you can do. But there's also the very rich resources of the, of the high school high school version. And now, four years after we started building that, there are over 100 schools in Australia teaching this. There are over 400 in, in the US. There are many other schools that are using some of our material, but not formally teaching big history. So that's at the school level. There are also, um, I've taught big history in Korea for five years. I've been going and teaching summer courses. So there are one or two schools in Korea, there are schools in the Netherlands. This is at the school level. And most of those schools are using the material that's been put together for the Big History Project. I had a lot to do with the basic structure of that. Um, not with all of the details. There's, there's video material, there's printed material, there's, there's graphics and so on. And as far as we can see, the Big History Project is doing very well in schools. But we've gone through schools, not through the educational bureaucracy. For the very simple reason that if you go through the educational bureaucracy, you're immediately involved in complex negotiations about how you fit in with existing curricula and syllabi. If you go through individual schools that are willing to experiment with a new syllabus, you can really try it out. You can improve it. You can get feedback. So at the moment, we're at the level of going through schools. We would like to see these courses going into schools in non-English speaking countries. We're already talking to schools in Hong Kong, which may provide a way of eventually producing a Mandarin version. Mm -hmm. That's the school level. I've been contacted by many primary school teachers who say, we'd love to see a primary school version of this. And I can see absolutely no reason why that the basic story could not be told at a primary school level. And that would set students up for a more sophisticated level later on, and then an even more sophisticated level, perhaps, at university. So I think one of the other problems with education at the moment is we have this idea that, you know, a student does a course in this, then they move on, then they do a course in that, then they move on. Whereas good education really ought to take the form of a spiral. You encounter a set of ideas, a complex set of ideas, as a primary school student, as a child, as a primary school student, then as a teenager, then as an adult. And each time you go deeper. But what comes after big history, I'm, I'm, I'm really not sure. It's, this is very, very rich territory. And I have this hunch, as I keep saying, that 
the big research problems now lie, E.O. Wilson's been saying this for a long time, lie between disciplines. Increasingly, they lie between disciplines for the simple reason that such rich research has been done within the disciplinary frameworks. So I think as more and more people begin to take seriously the idea of an overview of all modern knowledge, I think it'll generate astonishing synergies, intellectual synergies, with something of the power of Big Bang cosmology, which was the first great scientific synergy of, 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 of recent scientific history, bringing together the science of the very large and the very small. Many scientists thought that was completely undoable when they came together. It, 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 they came together with the, with the force of a sort of intellectual Big Bang. And I think big history has the power to generate lots of sort of smaller Big Bangs on questions like what makes humans different?